Hi again, everyone, and welcome to the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. I'm Dave Mitchell, and it is hard to believe, but we are at the end of another baseball season. Sure, the playoffs are still going on, the World Series is going on, but tonight is our final Ohio Baseball Weekly Show for the season, and we're going to talk tonight about the five things that both Mark and I think the Reds and Indians should do during the offseason as we sign off. Mark, Donahue down south near Dayton. Boy, I'll tell you what, this has been just one of those years. This is our fourth season of doing this show. I've had a lot of fun doing this show, but unfortunately it was a year where both teams did not make the playoffs. First time that's ever happened is us doing this show. Well, I think what that means, obviously, uh, it is. it means that next year, the Reds and Indians will be in the World Series playing each other, and uh, our show will take on a whole new luster at that time. <laughs> what, do you, what do you think the odds will be in Vegas of that actually happening, the Reds and the Indians in the World Series? I don't know, but I, I'd, give, <laughs> I'd give a lot of odds for that. <laughs> yeah, I, I would too, especially the way your GM works and our president works. I mean, I've, I've got to kind of wonder as far as things are going. Like I said, this is going to be the last show of the season. Mark and I are going on hiatus. And, Mark, I'm going to start saying from now on, and nobody can really prove it wrong, this is about the longest-running podcast on the Internet today. I don't think there's any show that has gone on for at least four years. And next year, on March 9th, will be our fifth year. Well, I expect a raise next year commensurate with the raise I had last year because we are setting records as we speak, and I think our burgeoning radio audience uh, deserves uh, the best we have to offer. And uh, so my agent will be calling you immediately uh, after the show. Uh, And if you want me next year, Dave, you got to pay. The best thing that I can say to you, Mark, is I'm taking the same stand that Mark Shapiro is. We will not be dealing with any high-priced free agents this year. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yes. All right. I get it. <laughs> yes. Can you believe it, Mark, that the Indians president of operations came out on the radio today and told the fans of Cleveland, don't expect us to go after any high-priced free agents this year because it's not going to happen. I cannot believe the president of an organization would actually come out and tell people that. Well, other than the fact that I guess he's trying to measure or or to retard expectations, I guess, uh, manage expectations, whatever you want to call it, uh, that team is one of the teams in baseball that it really is only a player or two away from being in the playoffs. And when you look at what happens almost every year, and Kansas City is a perfect example, uh, they win the wild card, they're, they're down, what, four or five runs in the wild card game, they come back and pull it out, they win it, and now they've won six straight playoff games. So you, all you have to do is get in the playoffs and you got a shot. And for a president to say that, but he has no idea what is going to be out there available to him, especially if you get near the beginning of the season and there's some really good free agents left. You mean you wouldn't make a move if you saw that you could pick up a great left fielder who would drive you in 100 runs and 
maybe be another cruise uh, that the, that Baltimore picked up. That's, it, it doesn't make any sense. You could say I we don't anticipate uh, signing a free agent or a high price free agent, uh, but who knows what, what's going to happen? And it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Why would you say it? To what to what benefit is there to say it? I really don't can't think of any reason why the guy would come out and say something like that. I mean, it's it's just unfathomable as far as what he is trying to accomplish. I mean, first of all, you're going into the winter months, Mark, where the Browns are playing some good football. The Cavaliers have got LeBron James and Kevin Love coming into the organization. You're already the third-rated organization in the city of Cleveland. And now the president comes out and says, hey, don't worry about us. We're going to go sign Larry Moe and Curley, and we're going to expect you to come out and buy tickets next year. What drugs is this guy on? <laughs> I, 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 you know, I, and I ask that with so much love. <laughs> well, the, the Reds are in the same position as the Indians, but you know, it, it, David, honestly, if I was an investor and I had the money to buy either Indians or Reds today with the anticipation one team or the other is going to be in the World Series, I'd buy the Indians. And and we'll get into this a little later in terms of our five things we would do with each team. But the contracts the Reds have in place, which are strictly the responsibility of the general manager, they are frightening. And what this team could be like in 2016 is a team that is absolutely decimated and starts over not unlike the the Marlins did, you know, after they won the World Series several times, twice. Uh, it may be, you know, a Triple A team, and right now that Triple A talent base is very, very low for the Reds. Mark, let's talk about a couple of players near and dear to my heart. First of all, let's go to Baltimore, where they're down two nothing to Kansas City, and we're rained out tonight in Game Three. They'll play that game tomorrow night, but. Baltimore's big free agent acquisition, many people think it was Nelson Cruz. It wasn't. Nelson Cruz was an $8 million bargain as far as Baltimore was concerned. Their big free agent acquisition this year was Ubaldo Jimenez from the Cleveland Indians, signing him for $13 million a year for four years. Now, he promptly went out this year, Mark, and fell flat on his face, which I don't want to pat myself on the back, but I predicted that he would be the most overpriced free agent on the market when he became a free agent last year. Now, did you hear the latest story about Ubaldo Jimenez? I did not. Let me explain it to you. Ubaldo Jimenez was kept off the American League Championship Series roster. Buck Showalter said, you pitched so terrible this year, we're not even going to put you on the roster. You're not part of the 25-man roster, but we'd like to have you sit in the dugout with us. Where do you think Ubaldo Jimenez is? No idea. He is not with the team. He is in Miami. He is not even spending the playoffs with his teammates. Now, what does that tell you about his priorities? That really is an amazing thing. I mean, I can't believe they let him not be there. I mean, they, they can force him to be there. I agree. But why would you want a guy that doesn't want to be there? Oh, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, it's uh, that it really is astonishing. 
I, I think so too, and I think he's going to be a pitcher that the Orioles would love to get rid of. Uh, again, it's one of those cases, Mark, where he he got his entire motion all screwed up, and the Orioles have been spending all year long trying to get his motion back under control, but he doesn't listen to anybody. The only thing that Ubaldo listens to is the almighty dollar, and the Orioles are already paying it to him. Now, the second player near and dear to my heart is a player that I think the Indians and the Reds could both use. I think he's going to be a free agent. He's a looming free agent. I think he would be an outstanding pickup for either club, but there is absolutely no way either team is going to go after him, and I'm not sure any team is even going to want this guy, even though he is a good ball player and hasn't had a history of trouble in his lifetime. Do you know who that player is, Mark? Aramis Ramirez? No. Okay. <laughs> the third baseman for the San Francisco Giants, Pablo Sandoval. Is he really? He's a free agent? He's a free agent, and nobody will go after this guy, not because of any off-the-field turmoil or anything, but the fa- and he would fit in perfectly in the Reds and Indians lineup. You could put him at third base on either ball club. You could put him at cleanup. And he would be an excellent addition for either team, the Reds or the Indians. But neither team, nor do I think any other team in baseball, will go after him because he's got a weight problem. Yeah, and that's, you know, it's not to be discounted. You know, he, he reminds me when I see him play of Dimitri Young. Remember him, the Reds? Mm-hmm. Uh, the meat hook? Uh, he, he even looks like him, and he swings like him, and he's, he's a, I mean, he, he appears like he's a good teammate, and he's got a lot of. You know, he's always smiling, and he's, uh, he's not a bad defensive player either. You're right. But you, you asked me the question of who it might be, but uh, the reason I mentioned Ramirez is I saw it, it online today on one of the uh, – it was either Sports Illustrated or ESPN, one of the writers, suggested that the Reds go after Ramirez. He's, he's going to be a free agent. It's funny they did not bring up Sandoval, though. Uh, and I, I don't know if he would be more or less money than Ramirez. Ramirez is making a lot of money, and I don't think he. You know, I think he's on the downside of his uh, of his career. But he's a kind of guy. Yeah, isn't Ramirez thirty five years old? I think he's thirty six, but uh, you know, thirty five okay. or thirty six. But if you could get him for a cruise type contract, eight to ten million dollars, something like that, you know, he, he's a very functional hitter, and, and he can certainly help your your offense, both teams. So, uh, you know, there's some guys out there that would be available to the Indians and the Reds. But if your president said they're not going after free agents, it's kind of a moot point. Yeah, it, it is. And the one thing Mark Shapiro did say today was, don't be surprised if we dangle one of three pitchers out there. And two of the three pitchers that he talked about was Danny Salazar and Trevor Bauer to try to get a run-producing outfielder or right-handed hitter. Um, now, I, you know, I, I would love to play poker with Mark Shapiro because he just lets you know exactly what he's going to do. I, I'd love to play poker with the guy. I, I could win a fortune off of this guy. Yep. <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, you, you hit it. You know, there's, there's nothing to be gained by it, and so why say it? That's, that's my point, too. Yeah, I, I I agree with you. Now, Mark, do you know what happened 
40 years ago this year. This about year? About this time. Actually, it was last, or 40 years ago this month in Cincinnati. 1974. Do you recall? What, give me a chance. Well, it was 45, well, well, it was 1969. Well, that's not 40 years. Come on, David. Well, what is what is it? Well, 40 years would be 1974, so do the math. All right, so 45 years ago. 45 40, years ago. 1969. Yes. This, this was during the season or after the season? After the season. It was. It happened this month. Uh, the Reds traded Lee May and Tommy Helm. No. In, okay. Um, no, that was 71. You're right. That was 71. Um, All right. I'll put you out of your misery. Okay. Sparky Anderson. Oh, yeah. He was hired as manager of the Cincinnati Reds. Now, let's compare (laughs) the Reds hiring Sparky Anderson and how that turned out with Tony LaRusse's major move today of hiring Chip Hale to manage the Arizona Diamondbacks. Again, what what is going through Tony LaRusse's mind? Well, no, wait a minute. When the okay. Reds, when the Reds hired Sparky Anderson in 1969, nobody knew who the hell Sparky Anderson was. They never That's true. heard of him. And you know, do you know who he replaced? Uh, uh oh, Dave uh Go ahead, put me out of my misery. It's Dave something. Dave Bristol. That's it. Yes, I couldn't remember his last name. Had Dave Bristol stayed one more year, he'd be in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> this is why I bring this up. Okay? Tony Larusa is proving to me and proving to the rest of the baseball world just what an adequate baseball guy he always has been. I mean, let's talk about Tony Larusa's managerial skills. First of all, I've never been a big advocate that Tony LaRussa is the type of guy that belongs in the Hall of Fame as far as being a manager is concerned. I've never been sold on his managerial skills. He didn't win a thing in Chicago. He won in Oakland with a team that anybody could have won with. As a matter of fact, he only won one World Series in Oakland. He was there three times and lost twice. Once to the Reds. Okay, and on top of that, he goes to St. Louis, and with the stacked amount of talent that this guy had, he still was only able to win two World Series with the Cardinals. Now, let's compare him to what Bruce Bochy has done with San Diego and San Francisco during his years as manager, and please tell me who the better manager was, Tony LaRussa or Bruce Bochy? Well, you're comparing apples with oranges in some way because your argument is that, you know, Bill Smith could have gone into those situations where LaRusso won and he could have won. Anybody could have won is what you're saying. That's your, that's your argument, if I, if I understand it. But if that's the case, then you have to discount all the games that he did win and managers with good teams are supposed to win. Now, it doesn't mean that if they do win, they're not good managers, because if that's the case, 
how would you then rate Jim Leland or Bobby Cox? Bobby Cox won a lot of divisions. He won one World Series after winning 14 consecutive divisions. Does that mean he's a bad manager? No, but it means that he consistently won. Tony LaRusso was not a consistent winner. If you go back and you look at the years in between World's Championships, he was not a very good. His record was not very good. What about Joe Torre? He he was with what three teams before he started winning with the Yankees? I agree with you on that one. Yeah, I he, I agree with you on that he was one. Atlanta. He was with St. Louis, and he was with uh, and, who, who's the other third team? Atlanta, St. Louis. I don't remember who the third team was. It was another National League team. And how about Lou Pinella? I mean, Lou Pinella, I think, was a very good manager. Yeah, I think Lou Pinella won wherever he went. Yeah, I mean, I, my, my and point he was is, a consistent winner. You have to match. I think where it's difficult to to really measure the value of a manager, it is the very subjective aspect of are you getting the most out of what you got on the bench on the on the field. To me, that's the measure of of a manager is. You are winning the amount of games that represents about the maximum capability of your team. Because you're right. I mean, I think anybody could have gone to some of those teams that Tony La Russa went into and they would have won. But you can't punish him for that. If he was supposed to win, he did. And to some degree, that puts even more pressure on a manager to go into a situation where, hey, pal, we got a you know a $200 million payroll you better win. How about Joe Girardi? Yes, and my, and my point is, Mark, he didn't win in the years that he was supposed to also. Yes, but he... As a matter of fact, he didn't even make the playoffs in the years that he was supposed to. But, so, but, you're, so your argument right there of him being able to get the best out of his ball club, I don't think he did that. I think the years that he won, he did, but he was not a consi- as consistent a manager or a winner as the guys that you just mentioned. Well, you know, uh, Joe Girardi with the Yankees, biggest payroll in baseball. He's not winning for how many years now in a row? Uh, Sparky Anderson, he lost a number of, you know, the Reds didn't win every year. Uh, and people no, but like, they were consistent. They, they contended. You know, well, something sure, they, that they, Oakland, they, Oakland but, didn't do. But they had a Hall of Fame team. I mean, my opinion of Sparky Anderson was he was way overrated, in my opinion. I watched him manage for years and years and years and years. You would have to be so incredibly inept as, as a manager not to win with that team. I don't think his his worth as a manager was visible when he was in Cincinnati. I think where he showed his stuff when he was with Detroit. And they had some great teams in Detroit. They had great talent. But, you know, he, he won in two locations, and he won a lot of games. But I, I don't buy into the, to the argument that just because a, a manager like Arusa has won with great teams that he's not deserving of winning. I think he's a he's – uh, I was going to call him a name. I better not say it. We won't be on the air next year. But he, <laughs> he's not a guy I, I would like to fool around with or have a drink with or something like that. But he – he he won, and isn't he what the third most wins in managerial history after Connie Mack and was it Joe McCarthy or somebody like that? 
Yeah, so, he's also up in losses, too. Yeah, that's true. But look at Joe Torre. I, I bet his win-loss record, despite his success with the Yankees, I bet he's barely over 500. You know, I, I agree with you, Mark, that there are managers that can make the most. They're, they're in the right place at the right time. And that's definitely what Joe Torre was when he took over the Yankee job. It wasn't so much that he was a great manager. What it was with him, as far as the Yankees were concerned, he provided the buffer that that team needed between George Steinbrenner and the locker room. I mean, Torrey probably took so much abuse out of Steinbrenner. And, I, and I'm a big fan of, of, of what George Steinbrenner was. I, I think that there, was, there were times that he went overboard, but there were times that I think he was absolutely right. The one thing that George Steinbrenner always wanted to do was win. Yeah, that's all he wanted to do was win. And he wanted guys around him that were winners. And Joe Torre probably took an amazing amount of abuse from George Steinbrenner as far as trying to keep it away from his players on the field. And and I agree with you that Joe Torre was a guy that was the right guy in the right place at the right time. You know, one guy that was supposed to be a genius on the bench and a great manager for decades was Gene Mock. Remember him? Gene Mock. And he managed the Phillies when the Phillies were probably the worst team in baseball, including the minor leagues. And then he went to the Angels, had more talent there, but he didn't win. And the last time he had a chance to win was that famous 1986 playoffs against the Red Sox when, uh, was it Henderson hit the home run off Donnie Moore? Dave Henderson, yep. Yeah, and Donnie the, Moore committed suicide over it. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, how, how would you rate a guy like that? I mean, by acclamation, everybody said he was a great, great manager, but he never won. So does that take him out of the great manager category? No, what I'm looking at as far as a great manager is somebody that wins consistently with different teams. Not, not different organizations, with different teams. And Tony La Russa didn't do that. He didn't win consistently. Yes, he's got a lot of wins, because the years that he won, they, they compiled a lot of wins. But he did not win consistently as far as being a manager is concerned. I mean, for example, the Cardinals won, uh, in, in what was it, in 2006, they won the World Series. Mm -hmm. In 2007, they took a nosedive. In 2008, they took a nosedive. And then they came back and they won the World Series again in 2010, or, two, or 2011. Well, but they weren't consistent winners. Well, but you, you look at the Cardinals organization and where they are, and you know, they, they are competitive almost every year. And they, ha they, have the sec they have the most World Series championships in National League history, second only to the Yankees. So that organization is doing something right, and they do it, not by having the biggest payroll. In fact, one of the best deals they ever did was trading Albert Pujols because they, they got him away. That, that payroll was ballooning, and they made a tough call. The fans hated it, and what do they do? They go out and win a World Series without him. So I have all kinds of respect for that organization, and I guess we just disagree on how you rate a manager. But, you know, it, I do agree with this that some managers, because there's a lack of talent on a team or they're a young team, they might need an old hand like a Dusty Baker. And then there are other teams 
that are are designed to win now. And so you want the best bench coach you got, the guy who can manage, uh, you know, the X's and O's. But I tell you, baseball is such an easy game. It's not managing or, or saying I'm going to hit and run here or steal a base here. That, that that is so overrated. It's managing the personalities of 25 to 40 guys a year that might be on the major league roster, and that's what some of these managers do very well. And I, you know, what I heard was that La Russa was very much respected by the players. And he was a tough guy, and he was kind of a jerk at times. But nobody, you know, got out of line on that team. And, you know, some managers have that. So I, I guess we are looking at different things than what we would look for in a manager. But, you know, Terry Francona, to me, is one of the best managers in baseball. And he won in Boston. Uh, he's not won with Cleveland yet. But I think everybody would say he's a pretty darn good manager. I could actually make a case, Mark. The two managers with the St. Louis Cardinals, and this is going to lead us into one of the things that you wanted to discuss tonight, were better managers than Tony La Russa. One was Red Shandienst, and the other one is Mike Matheny. To, to take the Cardinals where they have been this year and where they are this year by Mike Matheny, I, I would be willing to bet that Tony La Russa couldn't do that. Well, you might be right. But that's, that's the part that we'll never be able to prove is, you know, what would a different manager do in a different, in the same situation? Like you give the Reds of 2014, is there anybody who could have managed that team to a winning season? And my answer is, I don't think so. Uh, they had so many injuries, you can't overcome that. So there are certain things that happen during a season that you can't overcome. But my point is, that when a manager is put in a position to win, and they do win, that they're supposed to win, I don't think that should be something that should be counted against them. And I and, and if I'm making the point that 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 is counting against Larusa, I'm not making my point correctly. My my point is is that my mark for a manager is a guy that can consistently win. Every year, no matter what he has. Earl Weaver did it. Earl no, Weaver did it. He did not. Yes, he did, except for even the last two years that he came in and managed, Mark. He was the last, not the last year, but the year before that, he had the team in contention. Yes, but he didn't win every year. And he was with Baltimore. No, but he was in contention every year. Well, He had his team in a position to win. Yes, but so did La Russa, even when they didn't win, they were a competitive team. They didn't have many years where that team fell off the rails like the Reds did this year. And, you know, you could look back at what Weaver did. He won in, what, 1970, but he lost in 69 to the Mets. And they didn't win. And they lost in 71. Yeah. And they lost to in the Pirates. They lost in 79 to the Pirates. And so, you know, they every team is going to have ups and downs. And, yeah, I'm not putting words in your mouth saying that you believe that uh, a manager who wins when he's supposed to shouldn't be counted. But my point is you're going to have ups and downs, and it's it's how you manage 
a team over a long period of time and the consistency within the understanding you're not going to win every year. And I go back to Bobby Cox. And you kind of discounted that. Bobby Cox had a team that was a great – I mean, what what pitching staff was better in the last 50 years than that Braves team during that period of time? You could have been the bat boy with that rotation, and you would have won 100 games a year. But he never he, – he won one world championship with all that talent. Now, he has a lot of wins. He was manager of the year, and he's considered a great manager. But I contend anybody could have managed that team and won 90 games a year for 15 years. And that's what they did. So if you're going to say it's they've got to win consistently, I guess you have to say define winning because they certainly didn't win world championships. Thank you, old soothsayer, because you just made my point for me. Tony LaRusa could not do that with the Oakland A's with all the talent that he had. He could not do that with the St. Louis Cardinals with the talent that he had. And when the talent started going downhill, he got out and turned it over to Mike Matheny, who has taken a team this year that probably shouldn't be where they are and is. Yeah, I I have no problem with saying Matheny is a very, very good manager. But his best days are ahead of him. He's a young man. And we won't be able to look back and judge him for another 15, 20 years. If you're talking about lifetime managers like La Russa and Bobby Cox and Jim Leland, uh, Joe Girardi, Joe Torre, those kinds of guys, it's going to be a long time before we grade his papers. Is he a good manager right now? Yeah, I think so. But he also has a very good organization. Oh, I agree. The organization has a lot to do with it. The organization is who puts the players on the field. But like you said, Bobby Cox was able to take that team and win with it Every year, not every. I mean, and and he he had situations, Mark, where he didn't have. I mean, Chipper Jones was out one year and they won. I mean, he had players that were gone, and he still managed the way he stayed and, and won. Tony Larusa was unable to win certain years when he had Albert Pujols playing for him. He was unable to win when he had Canseco and Maguire playing for him. When he had Stewart as one of his, his stalwart pitchers, who's now his GM in Arizona. But, but what I'm saying is, he was not able to win year after year after year, like a Bobby Cox was, or like a Mike Matheny is. Bobby Cox had the best pitching staff, maybe in the history of baseball, for a period of about 10 years, 15 years. Go look at the numbers. I agree with you. And John Smoltz had arm surgery in those years, too. Yeah, but he, he was also they, a Cy Young winner. So was Glavin. So was Maddox more than once. Four-time uh, Cy Young winner in, in Maddox, three with the Braves. Glavin was Okay, fine. then explain to me. This is going to lead right into your argument. Then explain to me why the Reds didn't win this year. They had the best pitching staff maybe of the entire baseball season, at, at least one of the top two in the National League. Well, it certainly wasn't because of the manager. They had their... I'm not oh, saying it was. They had 11 guys on the DL during the regular season. And mm-hmm. they had almost every starter on the DL in the regular season. Go down their lineup. You can't win with that. It's like taking, taking the top six players out of the Cardinals 
and say, go win, go win the division. They wouldn't have done it. And, and, see, but see, with Bobby Cox had to do the same thing. He may have had the same pitchers, Mark, but he still had the same turnover. How many third basemen did the guy have? Terry Pendleton, Chipper Jones. How many second basemen did he have? Dave, are he you went from Glenn Hubbard. Those two third basemen you mentioned were all-stars. All-stars, right. How many shortstops did he have? They had Rafael Fercal one year. The guy can't stay on the field for more than 30 consecutive games. You give me the pitching staff that the Braves have, and you give me about any roster in baseball, and I'll be in the playoffs. Then why couldn't the Reds win this year? Because they didn't have anything else. They're starting eight players. Every one of them at one point was in the DL, except Frazier. Every one of them. But they had the best pitching staff in the National League. So what? So what? You didn't. You're talking about over a period. Of, we're talking ten to fifteen years, not one year. We're saying our, our argument is based on what managers are considered great managers over a long period of time. How do you measure that? And my point is, is it you either have to make a decision. It's because a, a guy's a great manager because he wins. Lots of world championships, like Sparky Anderson. And I say that's not accurate. My position is anybody could have won with that team in the 70s with the Reds. And they only won two World Series. And yet they were in the playoffs every year. In 71, they had a losing season. They, they should have won many, many more, in my opinion. So in my opinion, Sparky Anderson, through that period of time, didn't win nearly enough to rate him as a superstar manager. Does it mean he was a bad manager? No. It just means, I think, if they'd have had another manager, maybe a, a, a Walt Austin or somebody like that of that era, they would have won more World Series. And, and I know a lot of people that would agree with you on that, including me. I, I, have no, you know, I thought he was a better manager in Detroit than he was in Cincinnati. I agree. But I, I guess our argument is, I look at Bobby Cox, and I think that guy was an okay manager. He won consistently during the regular season. He could never win the big game except that one year when they won it was in 95 or whatever it was. Yes. And, and that was it. And he was in the playoffs 14 consecutive years. And that's where a manager, in my opinion, earns their salary. In the tight games and the playoff games, that's when a guy sitting on the bench can make a difference. And in my opinion, Bobby Cox, because of that, did not live up to that expectation of being a superstar manager. La Russa, how many World Series has he won? Four, uh, three. Okay. Well, it's more than Cox. <laughs> True. So, what, 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 but Cox was in the playoffs a lot more than La Russa was. Okay, that, but all I'm getting at is how we measure managers is very subjective. What is your criteria? Is it just to Mike, win games in the re regular season, or is it to win World Series? No, I mean, Mark, when you look at the playoffs nowadays, you've got two wild card teams that are playing for the, the championships of their league, the Giants and the Royals. Anything, the way they've got it set up today, Frank Robinson said it best when he was back with Baltimore. 
and and I'm reminded about this every time I talk talk with my father. Frank Robinson said back in '69 when when Baltimore had the best record in baseball, and they had to play the Minnesota Twins in the playoffs. He said we just spent 162 games proving that we were the best team in baseball. Now we got to do the do it again in the best three out of five. Anything can happen in a short series. That has been proven. But it's getting there. It's winning consistently with the teams that you're given. And giving your team a chance to win is what I think is the measurement of a good manager. And I'm saying that Tony Larusa, yeah, he won three World's Championships. Yeah, he won when he was supposed to. But what did he do in the years when the chips didn't fall as they may? You could say and, that about but, Dave. Only one team wins a World Series a year. You're that, right. That you cannot win and have had one hell of a good year as as a team and as a manager. And like you say, anything can happen in a short series. All I'm getting at is your position is that Tony La Russa is not as good as his record indicates. And I'm saying, uh, I think he is. I think he is as good as it indicates because he's done it over a long period of time. He's won World Series. He's won a lot of games. And I, I don't begrudge him the fact he was with good teams and he performed. But I do think... Okay, then how do you, how do you explain a, a Bruce Bochy? Well, I think Bruce... Because he, he's he's, a, a this, this Giants team is... is t- I mean, he's taken teams to the World Series that are totally different. I agree 100% with that. I think Bruce Bochy will be in the Hall of Fame, and he's earned it. He's, yes. he's, been, with, he's been with lousy teams in San Diego, crummy teams. He lost for a long time, and he came up to San Francisco, and he took teams that were – I remember when the Reds lost to them a couple of years ago. The Reds were so much better, it wasn't even funny. But he outmanaged Dusty Baker. And he's doing it, you know, he's just a, he's a very, very good manager. And he, to me, he is the guy that you could look at and say he's done it consistently and he has managed his teams beyond their abilities, including in San Diego when they didn't win. He, he didn't have good teams down there. No, he didn't. He did make the World Series one year, but they didn't have good teams there. Yeah. So I'm right. And... No, I'm, I'm just kidding. Uh, I think we'll <laughs> well, why? Why you wanted to get into this? Why are the Cardinals where they are and the Reds aren't? Okay, in terms of if a person didn't know where the teams finished this year, let me throw some numbers at you. Uh, the the Reds in pitching, uh, the Cardinals were the eighth best team in pitching, and they measure that by ERA. They had a 3.50 ERA. The Reds had a 3.59 ERA, nine hundredths of a point difference. Uh, in every other statistic, like their WHIP, the Cardinals were 1.24. The Reds were 1.24. Average against. So this is what the hitters hit against Cardinal pitching. 242. Against the Reds, hitters hit 237. Strikeouts. The Reds had 1,290. The Cardinals, 1,221. Home runs. And this is a telling statistic. 
and I want to get your take on this. The Cardinals gave up 123 home runs. The Reds gave up 163. That's 40 home runs more. Now, by every other statistical measure, the Reds were either equal with the Cardinals or better, except for that single statistic. Do you think, as an experienced baseball guy, that that number is telling? Do you think those 40 home runs made the difference between the Reds pitching staff and the Cardinals this year? Well, you would you would think it would, especially, uh, you know, I would want to know, are they solo homers? Are they two-run homers? Are they are they coming with runners and you know on base? I, I would want to know a little bit more. But just on face value, you would say yes by far. Okay, well, let me add then two other statistics. That it's it's amazing when you get back to that home run statistic. In in total runs allowed, the Cardinals gave up six hundred and three. The Reds gave up six hundred and twelve, only nine runs different. And in hits, the Cardinals gave up 1,321. The Reds, 1,282. Dave, in every pitching statistic, the Reds had better numbers than the Cardinals except one. And that was home runs allowed. And that jumped off the page at me like the whip. They were tied. They were within nine hundredths of a point in ERA. Uh, in runs, they were virtually tied. Hits, they were tied. The only thing that the Reds did worse was give up 40 more home runs. And I'm wondering, is that a number that, that would make a difference in a team's finish from first to fourth? And if you don't have an answer, let me give you some other stats. Defense. The Reds were the best fielding team in all of baseball. They had the fewest errors in baseball. They had the highest fielding percentage. The Cardinals were fourth in the National League and, and seventh all around in baseball. So the Reds were a better defensive team, by, really by quite a margin, statistically. Mm-hmm. And the Cardinals, as an example, they committed 88 errors and the Reds 16. So let's, in pitching, the Reds had better pitching overall except for home runs, almost every category. They were better defensively by far. So let's look at the real bugaboo for the Reds. They're hitting. The Cardinals, as a team, hit 253. The Reds, 238. Now, I could go on, but that statistic alone, if you don't look at anything else, uh, 15-point difference. In yes. Bad- that statistic stands out probably more than any other, and it's offset by the fact that the Reds actually out-homered the Cardinals. Cardinals had 105 home runs, the Reds 131. And in runs scored, uh, the Cardinals had 619 runs, and the Reds 595, very close, within, what, 24 runs. But the, but the point was that the statistically, there was only a couple things that stood out that, I, that I, I'm not suggesting they were the difference. But when you look at these numbers, the Reds had a better statistical year across the board than the Cardinals in almost every category except batting average and the fact they gave up 40 more home runs. 
Now, it, it appears on paper that those two statistics turned the seasons around for those teams. The Reds, when they finished, 14 games behind the Cardinals? I mean, yes. that's an amazing number of games behind a team that you were better than defensively, you were as good as pitching, and the only thing that you gave up was 40 more home runs, which I'm not dismissing at all, but the batting average of, of 15 points. The numbers, if you would look at those things and say, geez, and you didn't know who finished 14 games ahead of the other, you would never think, based on the stats, that there would be a 14-game difference between those two teams. Now, getting back to your point about Matheny, what is not shown here is the Reds lost 38 one-run games. Now, I don't know how many games by one run the Cardinals lost, but it was a hell of a lot less than that. They probably, I would say, probably lost 20 or 25. I would just guess one-run games. So now it's getting back to your point. Can a manager, a bench manager, the decisions he makes, when, when the statistics would indicate that those teams are very, very, very similar, losing 38 one-run games to me indicates that the manager on the bench has screwed up. And Matheny didn't. And I think Matheny, had he managed the Reds this year, it may have been different. It sure, sure would have not been a 14-game gap between those two teams. So that's how you explain it, as far as the managers are concerned. Well, I, I don't, I'm not offering any explanation. I'm bringing out the fact that statistically, if you look at these numbers, you would say these teams, the Reds, you know, except for two numbers, and I'm not, you know, diminishing their importance, but team batting average of 253 to 238, and on pitching, the Reds gave up 40 more home runs. Everything else, the Reds were better, <laughs> including defense. They were the best in baseball. How could that team finish 14 games out of first place? The answer is they lost 38 one-run games. That's the answer. Now, how, how do you account for losing that many one-run games? The only thing I can bring it back to is the, either the, the manager made the right decisions and the players didn't execute at critical times, or the manager made bad decisions. So is one of your five remedies for next season for the Cincinnati Reds to get rid of Brian Price? <laughs> no, it's not. Because I, I think it, it all boils down to the to the players at the end of the day, but I think these kinds of numbers indicate that while the Reds finished 14 games out of first place, they're not that far off. You know, they're not a team except offensively. Their batting average, the team batting average, was abysmal, 238. That's terrible. And there's no reason why they have to have a team that hits 238. Only one team was worse than the National League, and that was the Padres at 226. But the Reds hit with power. They scored enough runs to win. Uh, you know, it wasn't a case where they were ter They were outscored by the Cardinals only by 24 runs. And they gave up. They almost tied in runs allowed. It means the Reds lost 
an abundance of close games. That is, again, the, qu- the question is, who's to blame for that? Is it the way they... Approach- it could be the managers, or it could be the fact that the Reds had so many players coming off the bench uh, to to make up for the injured players that they had that they just didn't know how to win ball games. Where the Cardinals know how to win ball games. Yeah, and I think that's a good point that they the Cardinals have a lot of seasoned guys that have been around for a while. They do know how to win games, but they also have a lot of young kids <clears throat> that come in every year for the Cardinals, and they they play Cardinal ball. And I don't think the Reds have that yet. And what, as, as we get into our top five reasons to change and, and things to do, uh, I think with the Reds, uh, and some of my suggestions may be not looked at fondly by Reds fans, but the Reds have to build up that farm system. They, they have a very, very weak system. And that's going to come back to haunt them for a long time unless they make some major moves. Well, what are your, what are your five things for the Reds? Well, some of them are linked, and you could view them as three or four things or six or eight things, uh, depending on how you you look at it. Uh, The Reds need more than one bat. They have to have two bats. Uh, They need somebody at shortstop, and they need somebody in left field, or you move, as you suggested, as a matter of fact, you move Frazier to left field and you get a third baseman. Now, whether it's the Panda or it's Aramis Ramirez, or it's somebody else, you got to have somebody, and they don't have to hit 40 home runs, but you want somebody to hit 20 to 25 home runs, drive in 90 to 100 runs in left field, and gets on base. It, on base percentage is really, with the Reds, with the power they have in the lineup, they're going to drive in some runs if people are on, are on base. Uh, when they lost Chu, uh, they lost a lot of runs because, you know, uh, nobody was on. Even even though Bruce hit 214, there were times he he got some hits and nobody was on base. So my my big deal would be, I would trade Johnny Cueto, and I love Johnny Cueto. I wish they didn't have to trade Johnny Cueto, but he could bring you back two major league ready players or two huge minor league studs that the Reds can can restock their farm system with. And then I would move Chapman into the starting rotation. Uh, he could replace Cueto. He'd probably put up the same kind of numbers that Cueto did, so you don't lose anything there. Then they have to go out and get a third baseman and or a left fielder and a shortstop. So Chapman, Cueto, a shortstop, a third baseman, and a left fielder. And I think the trade of Cueto and Chapman, I mean, and the other, I'll, I'll put one aside for a moment, but if you trade Chapman or uh, you trade Cueto, you're going to get back. I mean, you could go to Colorado. I mean, this is this is. I'm just using this as an example. You could go to Colorado and trade Cueto to them and probably get Tulowitzki. Now, is is that a risky deal? I don't know. Tulowitzki's an everyday player, and even if he sh- slows down at shortstop, he could play third base. And you could get back probably another player with Tulowitzki, a minor leaguer. So you, you could do that, and that he, he's the he's the best chip the Reds have. Cueto is, or you could trade Chapman. If you package Chapman and send him down to Miami with two or three other players, would would the Marlins give up Stanton for Chapman 
and say Zach Cozart and somebody else. And what would Stanton mean to that that lineup? Those those deals, you call the Marlins and say, look, we're going to give you Zach Cozart and the best reliever in baseball, and Heisey, okay? And we want we want Stanton. They wouldn't hang up. They may not make the deal, but they'd listen to you. And so would Colorado if you went to them with the same package for Tulowitzki. So those are my. I think you. I think you could get Puig for Cueto. You know that that's a very good that's a good point because I think he's worn out his welcome in Los Angeles. Yes, uh, you're right. That, that that's a good. I think point. a lot of people have worn out their welcome in Los Angeles. Yeah, and I think uh, I doubt they would give him up. They'd probably give up, uh, you know, Matt uh, at, uh, Matt Kemp before they give up uh, Puig. Uh, he, he's a stud. I mean, he's going to be a superstar forever. But uh, you're right. I mean, they may just say the hell with it, and we're going to get rid of him. But I, before we get run out of time, I want to hear what you're saying about the Indians. Well, I think the very first thing that they need to do, and I, I think I kind of alluded to this right at the beginning of the show, is to get rid of Mark Shapiro. I think this organization has gone downhill. I think it's gone into the dumper ever since he became the team president in 2002. And I think it's time that this guy be gone. Um, their idea of rebuilding this franchise for next season is to make some improvements to the stadium. And to be quite honest with you, Mark, I'm going to say the same thing about the Indians that I say the same thing about the Browns, uh, is the fact that you put a winning team on the field in Cleveland, they'll come out and see this team play. They don't care if it's in the middle of the old municipal stadium that held 72,000 and had leaky toilets or if it's a brand-new progressive field or Jacobs Field or whatever you want to call it this year. They're going to come out. This, these people did not sell out 455 consecutive games because the stadium was brand-new. They sold out 455 consecutive games because this team was fun to watch and it was consistently a winner. And this team has not been a winner, a consistent winner, under Mark Shapiro. So the very first thing I would do is get rid of Mark Shapiro. The second thing I would do is extend Terry Francona's contract. I think he's a chip, like you say, Johnny Cueto. I think Terry Francona is a chip in the Indian side. They need to extend his contract by at least a couple of years and keep him rolling over uh, for the next four or five years. The third thing they need to do is trade Danny Salazar. I'm, I'm tired of Danny Salazar being the kid that, yes, is going to make it. I have seen a lot of pitchers come through Cleveland, Mark, that are going to make it, and they don't. And quite fr- quite honestly, I think Danny Salazar is one of those pitchers. Now, there are some rumors going around Cleveland today that the Indians are thinking of giving up either Salazar or Trevor Bauer. As much as I don't like Trevor Bauer's attitude, I think Salazar would be the guy that I would give up. And in return, they have to get a right-handed run-producing bat, which leads me to the fourth thing that I would do, and that is go hard and fast at Victor Martinez. The way I figure this Indians team, you've got about a two- to three-year window to win with this team. Victor Martinez has two to three years left. Now, you can rotate him in the DH spot and first base with Carlos Santana. You can put Nick Swisher 
back in left field and move Michael Brantley to right field. And I think that improves your lineup exponentially by putting Victor Martinez in that in that cleanup spot. And Victor, I think, would give the Indians what you would term a hometown discount because he liked playing in Cleveland. He did not want to leave. He liked playing in Boston for Terry Francona when he went there. And I think he's more than willing to come back to Cleveland if they'll loosen up the pocketbooks and give him the 14 to $15 million a year. And the last thing I think they need to do is find a third baseman. A majority of the errors, they led the, Nash, the American League in errors. They led Major League Baseball in errors this year. They need to shore up that defense. I think a lot of it's going to happen with Kipnis being healthy, with Santana playing first base on a full-time basis. I think a lot of it's going to happen with Brantley going to right field if they, they make that move. But they need to get themselves a good defensive third baseman to shore things up at that third base spot. Those are the five things that I would do for the Indians. Well, I think if we were in charge, we would probably meet in the World Series next year. <laughs> but I'm not going to hold my breath on that. But uh, uh, just a sidebar here in terms of you're always throwing trivia questions at me, and I don't think I failed you this year. But... What team currently has, actually they're tied with another team, the longest consecutive World Series game winning streak? The Reds. That's right. Damn. I thought I had you. Yeah. And that was back, well, they, they won game seven of the 75 series. They swept the Yankees in 76, and then they got back to the World Series in 90, and they swept the A's, so it's nine games. That's right, and they are tied with, uh, right now, Boston, who won nine straight. Uh, the Yankees won ten straight at one time, from 37, 39, wow. and 41, and then the Yankees won 12 straight in 27, 28, 27, 28, and 32. How did they get... 12 out of 27, 28, and 32. I got three three consecutive sweeps. Okay. Uh, And then in, but the the longest is 14. 96, 98, and 2,000 Yankees. 14 consecutive. Wow. So the Reds have a nice little streak going. If they ever got back to the World Series, maybe they could extend it. (laughs) Do you think either team can make it to the World Series next year? Uh, yeah, I think the Reds, for one year, if they would opt, if they would go out and get a power hitter or two, with the current pitching staff they have, if they just say, no, we're going to keep everybody, and everybody stays healthy, I think the Reds are closer to the World Series championship than the Indians are. But it doesn't mean the Indians can't make the playoffs. I just think if the Reds are healthy, they are a better team. But, Dave, the wheels fall off in 2016. I mean, it's it's un. We don't have time tonight, but it is unbelievable the players that are coming up for arbitration, or are, are free agents after 2015. So either they go all in in two in 215 and keep everybody, they keep Cueto, Lados, Leak, everybody, or they go into 2016 with an empty empty tray. 
Well, it should be a very interesting season next year. We're going to come back on the air on Monday night, March 9th, 2015. Mark, I'm sure you and I will stay in touch, but it should be a very interesting winter meetings for the Indians. And Dave, I want to thank the Reds. I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to do this show. I really enjoy it. I look forward to it. It's fun to uh, debate with you, and and I really enjoyed the (laughs) response we got this year from a lot of the people who listened to us, and look forward to doing it again next year. It was great. You know, like I said, this is the first year that neither one of the teams made the playoffs. That was a little disappointing, but all in all, you know, this is the longest-running I'm going to say this until somebody proves me wrong. The longest-running Internet podcast show right now going on today, and we're going to continue it for year five next year. Mark, have a happy Thanksgiving, a Merry Christmas, good luck on the book, the movie, and we'll talk to you again next March. Okay, David. Have a good one. And that's going to do it for us. Again, we'll be back on March 9th. That is a Monday night, 2015, and hopefully we'll be doing a couple shows from Arizona next year. Our thanks to Greg Mitchell, our producer here at UltimateSportsTalk.com, but most of all, our thanks, as Mark said, to you for listening. For Mark Donahue, I'm Dave Mitchell for one final time in 2014. Good night, everybody.